You can check out our website, theerietouch.com, for reference photos and source materials for each episode. You can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcast app. Be sure to follow us on Facebook for new leads and updates. And we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. It would really help us out. Hey y'all, I'm your host Gabrielle. And I'm Alan. Welcome to the Eerie Touch, where we dive into all things murder, mystery, and paranormal every week. We all have a best friend, or people we say are our close friends. Someone you trust who, against all odds, you know will always have your back. But what would you do if you found out the hand on your back was really a knife in your back? When two friends go in together to open up a mechanic shop, it doesn't take long for a seed of jealousy to be planted. As that seed grows, jealousy turns into hate, and hate turns into loathe. In the blink of an eye, like a stick of dynamite, their relationship blows up. Literally. This is the story of Maisel Hensley and Denny Gullet. It's December of 1989 in West Virginia. Coal was running strong, and with that, there was a lot more than just coal miners that were being needed. Mining coal also came with the need of machinery. Big machinery. With overworked loaders, high wall miners, blast wall drills, and dozers came breakdowns, equipment that needed serviced, and someone who knew what they were doing. This is where we come across Maisel and Denny. Maisel was living in Chapmanville, West Virginia, right outside of Logan. He was a blue-collar man who was never one to shy away from getting his hands a little dirty, an aspect that he grew up with, something that he always stuck by when raising his son, Maisel Jr. He had a good head on his shoulders and was an all-around family man. People in the area have stated that he was a type that would always help you out in a tough time. He loved country music and was the definition of an old-fashioned country man born and raised. Maisel Sr. and Denny had grown to be pretty good friends. Denny was from the area as well, and as always, West Virginia is full of close-knit little towns, and Chapmanville is no different. Denny was known to be this funny, almost like jokester type of persona, and he was more hard-headed, really, compared to Maisel, though. Their friendship was almost like when opposites attract. They had some interest in common, and that basically is what kept it going. Denny was always trying to have a good time, even if that meant just sitting around with good company. And that's exactly what him and Maisel Sr. were doing in December of 1989. They were hanging out, like always, talking about this and talking about that, when one thing leads to another and Maisel Sr. starts talking about this idea he has. You see, the building by Maisel's house had become the topic of conversation. Maisel Sr. was good at many things, and working on machinery no matter how big or how small, was at the top of that list. The building had been for sale for a bit, and as days went by, the thought of opening a machine shop became more prominent in his mind. So naturally, as one does, he changes the conversation to what he had been dwelling on to his best friend. It didn't take much convincing for Denny to lock on to that idea. Was Denny a mechanic, dude? Not really. He was like one of those guys that didn't really know a lot, but just kind of like hung out in the background just so he could be involved. You know what I mean? Yeah. If anything, Denny took the idea and ran with it. 
there was this like white one-story house that sat near the shop that went with the property and it could easily be up to rent with a quick inspection and fix so almost like danny was convincing Maisel. exactly to him this could lead into some big money danny goes on to Maisel senior about everything Maisel senior could be the head of the shop he could be the one who runs it supervises actually like works on the equipment etc while Danny could be behind the scenes working the books looking over the rental house taking care of the finances and both end up discussing the coal industry's need for big rig mechanics and with that being said both men had it decided they took out a series of loans to purchase what would then be known as Lee's machine shop Although the shop did offer work on automobiles, their primary income ended up being mining equipment. And as the shop grew, a need for employees came quick. And it's here that Maisel Sr. hires his son, Maisel Jr., and nephew, Lonnie Hensley. So, like a family business. Just like that. It's real common for families around the area to not just, like, open up a business, but to open a family business. A lot of people want something to pass down to their children and their children's children. And for those that have the means to own a business, that's exactly what it runs down to. Both Lonnie and Maisel Jr. took after their uncle and daddy when it came to servicing equipment. Both men learned from the best and soaked in whatever knowledge Maisel Sr. could give them. And it proved to work real well because as time goes by, their client list grows and the money's flowing. Maisel Sr. and Denny were more than ecstatic and for Maisel, more money meant a stable life for his family and for Denny, it meant he would finally make something of himself. All that hard work was paying off and it looked like dreams were coming true. Unfortunately, it was a short-lived dream. You see, Denny wasn't all that great at crunching numbers. He looked at the income the shop made as his money to spend and do with how he'd like, failing to remember the loan payments, the bills, and the creditors they had. Did Maisel know this? Not straight up. Danny always had like a flamboyant personality, so when he first started bragging and gloating, Maisel Sr. just let it go, just thinking, you know, like, oh, this is just how he is. Denny was known to flaunt what he had a time or two, but when creditors kept calling the shop trying to collect what was owed to them, well, that's when Maisel Sr. started thinking, you know, like, what the heck is going on? Of course, as always, Denny talks himself out of it. He calms Maisel Sr. down and plays it off like it's no big deal it's just a simple mistake and you know like i must have just missed a payment and that he can fix that and everything's just going to be okay but as time passes denny slowly comes to the realization that he has royally screwed up he's spent too much money he's let too many things go on for too long and he is sinking he then tries to become a cheapskate and takes all of his frustration out on Maisel senior they even get into an argument because Denny isn't wanting to order parts or anything. Like, he's just like not wanting to spend any money at all. And what'd Maisel say? Well, Maisel tells him he has to. I mean, what kind of machine shop doesn't have the parts to fix the machines they're working on? They'd have to close shop, and that's just not something Maisel's willing to do. After some thought, Denny attempts to sell his portions of the shop, but to no avail. So instead of sitting down, taking a breather, and... You know, coming up with a plan to work things out, his impatience rules over him and he chooses a devious plan that will ultimately end up backfiring in his face completely. In July of 1992, 
Denny nonchalantly talks Maisel Sr. into taking out a $150,000 key man life insurance policy. And for those that don't know, a key man life insurance policy, it's just a life insurance policy on the key person in the business. Basically, a company purchases it on the key employee, pays the premium, and is the beneficiary of the policy. If that person unexpectedly dies, the company receives the insurance payoff. I'm sure some of you at this point already have an idea of where this is going, but I doubt, unless you're familiar with it, that you know how it's going to go. Danny plays this off as just no big deal. You know, this is the smart thing to do, and every major business does it, yada yada, and Maisel Sr. ends up agreeing, but he originally wanted to make his wife the beneficiary of the policy, and Danny just could not have that. He pushes to Maisel that, you know, he's half owner, and it just wouldn't be right if it wasn't him. He guilt trips him, basically, until Maisel's persuaded enough to where he actually makes Denny the beneficiary. Now, Denny has all the time in the world to come up with a way to rid him of the root of all of his problems. He purposely waits and waits and waits until November 29th of 1993. In the early morning hours, Denny calls Maisel Sr. at his home and asks him to go ahead and punch Lonnie's time card when he got to work so Lonnie wouldn't be out any time on his paycheck. Okay, where's Lonnie? Well, Denny asked Lonnie to come over to his house early that morning before work so he could take a look at his truck. I I told you before that Denny wasn't the mechanic in the group. He was lucky if he even knew how to change his oil. So he sells Lonnie some bull story about how something's wrong with his truck and he has no idea what he's doing, so he wants him to come over and take a look at it himself. All of which he tells Maisel Sr. as to why he needs him to punch Lonnie's time card. Okay. Lonnie arrives at Denny's house at 7.45 that morning. He inspects the truck, he's looking over everything, and, you know, he just, like, starts giving his opinion on what could be wrong with it. As he starts to walk back to his truck to leave, Denny says, you know, he's like, oh, hold on a second, hold on a second, I have something to give you from Maisel. He brings out this cardboard box to Lonnie. The top of it and like one side of the box are removed and inside is a smaller box that's wrapped in packing tape with two plastic coated wires coming out of it near the bottom. Naturally, Lonnie's looking at it like, what in the world is this? Just pure confusion. And Denny reads the room, so to speak, pretty fast and tells him that it's just a guy gift. He says in the smaller box is this inflatable sex doll that has the body of Dolly Parton because, you know, remember, Maisel Sr. was a big Dolly fan and, you know, just thought she was beautiful. But this doll had her body and the face, though, of Ronald Reagan. All right, but what's the wires for? Well, Denny claims that when the two wires are connected to a car battery, that the doll will inflate and pop out of the box. He says that's why the top of the bigger box is cut, so it'll be easier for the doll to just pop out all the way while while he's laughing. And Lonnie starts giggling and thinks this is just going to be so hilarious to see Maisel Sr.'s reaction. As he takes the box to his truck, Denny tells him don't, you know, tells him not to tell or show anyone the box, not even the other guys at the shop. He wants it to be a complete surprise. Lonnie agrees and makes his way to work. He parks his truck in this parking lot that sits adjacent from the machine shop. He's about 12 feet away from the rental property and about 60 feet away from the shop. Contrary to what he promised Denny, 
Lonnie goes straight into the shop and tells Maisel Sr.'s 19-year-old son, Maisel Jr., about the gag gift. Both guys are just giggling, and Maisel Jr. decides that he just can't miss the look on his daddy's face when he sees his blow-up doll. So they both make their way back to the truck and see Maisel Sr. coming out. They're trying to get him to come over and tell him, you know, oh, come over here and see what Denny sent you. He sent you this gift. And Maisel Sr. at first actually told them that he didn't have time for gifts because he was needing to run to make an equipment delivery. However, the men talk him into coming over anyways. While they're making their way to Lonnie's truck, Maisel Jr. is going on about how this is going to be an early Christmas gift and that he knows he always liked Dolly Parton, but this is going to look so much better than her. You know, they're all just kind of laughing at what they're assuming is going to be this huge prank. Lonnie places the box in the lot and removes the battery from his truck. He attaches the wires just like Denny had told him to do. He steps back and at this point, he's about five feet away And before anyone can say or do anything else, the box instantly blows up. What do you mean blows up? Like like he caught fire? No. Like, I mean completely blows the hell up. You see, there was never a blow-up doll in that box. What we'll soon find out later is that the only thing that box contained was dynamite. Lonnie was left standing with nothing but the waistband of his pants still on. Maisel Jr. was severely injured, and Maisel Sr. was injured as well and knocked unconscious. According to the Weekly World News, Maisel later testified at trial, claiming that when he came back to it, he could hear his son crying out for him, saying, Oh, Daddy, just over and over again. The blast was heard all over, and people were frantically calling the police. Once authorities arrived on the scene to see the aftermath, they were left completely speechless. Medics arrive and take all three of them into the hospital in the hopes of saving their lives. Successfully, doctors were able to save both Maisel Sr. and Lonnie. Sadly, though, Maisel Jr. succumbed to his injuries and passed away three days after being admitted. So, this went from pretty much a a terror attack to murder. Yep. Police are scourging the horrific scene of the explosion. The machine shop was damaged, and the rental property was severely damaged. Was it worse than the shop? Oh, yeah. Remember, the rental property, the rental house, was only about 12 feet from the bomb while the shop was 60 feet away. After further inspection, the foundation of that house was completely busted. The windows were blown out. It was so bad that it actually caused all of the kitchen cabinets to come clean off the walls. It had to be a chaotic scene to walk into. Oh, yeah. At at this point, did the police know what happened? Once investigators got on the scene and started tagging everything, it didn't take them long to call in the ATF. And for those who don't know, uh, ATF stands for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and, and Explosives. The ATF are going through everything and realizing that something fishy has definitely went down. They're questioning everyone around and everyone who had a connection to the three men. It's pretty clear to them that someone in that group was a target. They end up being able to question Lonnie and Maisel Sr. And after they leave the hospital, the federal agents make a beeline straight to Denny. It's important to note for later that at the time they're talking to Denny, he isn't under arrest. The agents give him time to process everything and then make it obvious to him that they know about the so-called gag gift. 
The conversation is pretty mild and understanding, honestly, just considering that he had just orchestrated a bombing. And this is part of an interrogation technique. You already know the facts, so you go in understanding, um, you know, I know this is a tough time for you. Try to be sympathetic Mm -hmm. uh, to... You know, like, I understand what you're going through. Even though you know the facts, you know, you've, you've already been told what happened, where it came from. Yeah. Um, even though they're just doing simple questioning, it's a tactic that's used to get you more truthful information. Okay. It, it helps calm them down. They make, it makes them think you're on their side. It's, it's kind of different than the straight, more brutal kind of grilling someone. Mm-hmm. Because... If you do the grilling, sometimes they'll buck up on you and shut down and won't say anything. Okay. This tactic seemed to have worked because as the agent is saying, you didn't mean to kill anyone, did you? Then he shakes his head no while he's looking down. Then the agent says, the bomb was just supposed to be a prank, right? And then he shakes his head yes. This is more than enough for authorities to start tying together loose ends. They discover pretty quickly about that $150,000 life insurance policy. Friends and close family are telling authorities all about the arguments that had taken place between Maisel Sr. and Denny over money. After looking into the machine shop's finances, they discover just how much debt it was actually in, and they're putting two and two together. Forensic experts later reveal that there was never a blow-up doll in the box. What it did contain was six sticks of dynamite that, when wired to that car battery, would ignite a complete hell. And I'm just wondering, like, where do you even buy dynamite at? Well, uh, there's a couple of different ways. You can be certified to actually purchase dynamite or explosives. You can know somebody that's, that, that can purchase it, that's uh, certified in it. Especially around here, uh, with all the mining, uh, it wouldn't be uncommon to find someone that works for a blasting company that, you know, hey, can I got a stump I need to remove. You know, can you get me a few sticks of dynamite? See, that's what I was going to say. You know, I won't say just around here because I feel like this happens everywhere. It's all about who you know and where their major, you know, where they worked on a lot of mining equipment. I just wonder if Denny knew somebody that was more like, you know, well, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, I've worked on this machine, worked on these machines for y'all and stuff. You know, can y'all give me a couple of sticks of dynamite? And, you know, maybe and honestly, it, it's really not uncommon to find it in, in an abandoned mines in a shed somewhere. It's, it's I mean, that's, that's happened oh, before. Wow. We've had to actually call in the ATF to dispose of it. I'll say I did not know that. <laughs> and I'm born and raised here. So it was just randomly just in these on these old strip jobs i just left yeah wow okay yeah i definitely did not never even knew that well anyways the feds have more than enough evidence to arrest denny for murder and attempted murder not to mention the charges for creating a bomb their theory is that denny had come up with a plan to get some easy money to pay off his debt and get out scot-free all he had to do was kill mazel senior in trial it comes out that mazel jr was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was never the intended target. I'm assuming that's why he told Lonnie to don't tell anybody else or, or yeah. show anybody else. Just give it to him and let him do it. So where Kinda. was where was Lonnie? Well, Lonnie actually was part of the target. The plan was to wait a while in the hopes that it wouldn't be so obvious that Denny was, you know, planning this whole big thing. 
He wanted Lonnie to take the box and everything into Maisel Sr.'s home. Lonnie was going to have to be killed too because he would be the one who could link Denny to the whole thing. If it would have played out the way Denny had hoped, no one would have known about the gag gift but Lonnie and Maisel Sr. Lonnie would have brought it in the house, hooked it up, and both Lonnie and Maisel Sr. would have been dead on impact. No one would have known where the bomb came from or who was behind it, which... I feel like was kind of dumb to begin with because they would have easily been able to find out about that life insurance policy anyways. And that's true. Not to mention that we may always look at the spouse first and then we go on to the next, you know, closest. Mm-hmm. In this case, the moment I would have heard money problems between both of them, you know, the arguments over money, I would have been suspicious right off the bat. Especially considering, you know, they're business partners. Yeah. So you would always have a real strong suspicion, especially if money's involved. For sure. Lonnie and Maisel Sr. were both able to testify against Denny in court. It was a heartbreaking sight to see. Lonnie had both of his hands blown off, lost one of his eyes, and had his privates blown off. Maisel Sr. was left mostly deaf. He lost a lot of meat from his waist down and lost his vision in one eye and had a hole in his brain. But regardless... Both men found the strength to walk in that courtroom and make sure that Denny was held accountable for the horror he had laid out. Lonnie told jurors that November 29th of 1993 was the worst day of his life. He spoke that one minute they were all just joking about how this was going to be better than Dolly. He was going to have their turn with the doll first, just like cutting up. And the next minute, he was soaked in blood. It didn't take much for the jury to come back with a guilty verdict. Denny Gullett was charged with malicious damaging and destroying and attempting to damage and destroy by means of explosives, a building used in interstate commerce and activity affecting interstate commerce that is rental property, which resulted in Maisel Lee Hensley Jr.'s death. He was sentenced to 38 years in prison. And did he file an appeal? Don't they always? Denny did file an appeal and tried to get the testimony of the federal agent who had questioned him to be thrown out. Now, why? Well, like I said earlier, it was important to note that Denny wasn't under arrest at the time of his questioning with those agents. So he tries to say that because he wasn't read his Miranda rights, that it shouldn't have ever been allowed to have been used against him in the court of law. I'm assuming that this time, of course, it's always Miranda rights. Uh, He may have been under suspicion, but at this time, he's not been accused of anything. He's not been arrested for no, anything. No, he was not under uh, arrest. And, and as referred to your uh, what you said earlier, you know, they were using questions like, well, you didn't mean to kill anyone, did you? You know, it was just a prank. And they may have, have kind of thought at the time, you know, it, it was just a prank. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but he wasn't under arrest at the time. Uh, Miranda Wright's come into play. He was, he was just given, given a statement at the time, I guess. Uh, he was not under arrest, so they weren't required to read him his Miranda rights. So is there ever a time that, you know, like an example of something like where you wouldn't have to have your Miranda rights read to you? Yeah, Miranda rights are, I mean, it's it's very touchy. It's You've got to kind of work yourself around it. But like I said, Miranda rights have to be read to someone who is under being questioned under arrest. Uh, it's always a good policy. What we usually do, whether they're under arrest, if it, they're a, if we, you know, they're our number one suspect, we'll go ahead and read them their Miranda rights, even though they're not under arrest, and we'll uh, specifically say, you know, after we read them, you you understand you're not under arrest. 
but that that's not necessarily every time that you have to do that. Right. Okay, so you only get... Not, not just for questioning. So you only get read your Miranda rights if you're being questioned while you're under arrest. If you're being questioned and you're not under arrest, then you're not going to get them read to you. Most of the time, yeah. Okay. Well, Supreme Court basically just didn't really care what he thought. <laughs> they ruled that even if nonverbal responses were obtained in violation of Miranda, that he knowingly and voluntarily made them. So I'm assuming like the nonverbal would be like shaking his head up and down or you know, shaking his head no. Yeah, because where he yeah, because that he didn't he didn't come out and say yes or no, but he shook his head yes or no. Okay. Yeah. They were not dismissing the agent's testimony and they were allowing it. In this appeal, he denies ever giving a gift to Lonnie, denies trying to kill Maisel Sr., and goes on and on about how he doesn't even know how to build a bomb. Apparently, he didn't really know how to build a bomb to begin with. Uh, He had sticks of dynamite. All he had to do was ignite them. I wouldn't think it'd really be that hard to figure out. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. I mean, mean, dynamite, sticks of dynamite are just like... Almost like kind of like fireworks, just, you know, death fireworks. You know what I mean? Like, don't you just, you just ignite the, don't they have like a wire or cord hanging out? You just light them. Yeah, all all you need is an ignition source. Yeah, so, I mean, how hard is it to just, you know, light some, light some sticks? And and that's what he done when they stuck it to the battery that, that caused a spark, which, which ignited it. Right, like. You don't need to be, a, you know, a brain scientist to know how to light a stick of dynamite. Right now, what I can't understand is, in his appeal, he denies trying to kill Maisel or, or get, ever giving the gift when there was actual witnesses to testify mm-hmm. that were still alive, thankfully, to, to be able to testify against him. I know. Well, he and he never gave, like, a backup story. You know what I mean? Like, usually when... You go to court and you're trying to defend yourself and you're saying, no, I didn't do this. Well, usually, you know, like you you would come up with a story of what you believe happened. Am I right? Usually. Uh, deflecting, yeah. Yes, to deflect. And he doesn't really even come up with a story to deflect. He's just saying, no, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do this. Uh, again, that's that's hard to deny when you have, you know, the, the, the guy, Lonnie, that, that actually... Was Lonnie who picked up the package? Yeah, Lonnie picked up the package. That picked up the package. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's still alive to to be able to testify to that. And and you know, Maisel Senior. I mean, they were both still alive to actually be able to testify that Lonnie Lonnie, it was gave to Lonnie, and they went in there. It's not like they made this box and blew theirself up. Yeah, like that would make no sense. But no one believed him, anyways. There were too many facts against him, and after a direct examination, the court decided that Miranda Shield no longer protected him against the government because of his prior inconsistent statements. His sentence would remain at 38 years. Denny Gullet is now located in the Federal Correctional Institution in Ashland, Kentucky, which ironically is literally about four minutes from my aunt's house, the one I, the, the one that I lived with whenever I went to college down there. Ah, small world. <laughs> It really is. <laughs> Lonnie Hensley ended up losing more than just his hands. Throughout the years, he's lost both of his arms and through many surgeries has only a partial eyelid on his remaining eye. Maisel Hensley Sr. had repeat infections due to copper shavings from that awful day that his body still couldn't process. He lost his son and was forced to live in a world where he was taken from him. Maisel Hensley Jr., who was only 19 years old at the time of his death, 
lost an entire lifetime that he should have been able to live out. All of this because one man just couldn't add right. Again, I'm your host, Gabrielle. And I'm Alan. We'll talk next week.